So two scriptures uh, once again this morning, Second uh, Corinthians 5, uh, 17 through 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Tom Williams had a stroke, and that's why they left. So I'm going to ask uh, the Lord's blessing on him and them right now. Let's pray together. All right, uh, good morning, it's good to be with y'all. Um, we have been studying together for the past uh, few weeks this idea of the apostles having a ministry of reconciliation, and, and by virtue of that, um, we should be committed to a ministry of reconciliation as well as we imitate their discipleship. Paul says on several occasions, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so I don't think it's, he's just saying, hey, we have this ministry of reconciliation, but you don't need to worry about it. He's, he's calling all of us to what is really in many ways the heart of the gospel when we consider in the full biblical context what reconciliation involves. So last week, um, we began to study the ways that individual reconciliation to God really lies at the heart of this ministry of reconciliation. Um, there are many facets to it. We've been surveying those. We're going to be diving more deeply into those as time goes by. But the point of this little uh, uh, three or four week series is that we've got to begin here with individual sin. That's what we talked about last week. At the heart of the problem, not only with ourselves and with ourselves in relation to God, but really with the whole world, is, is human sin. That's where everything began to go awry in biblical history that's where it begins to go awry in each of our lives as we recapitulate basically the dynamics of the Garden of Eden. Um, we take it from blessing uh, to, to a curse because we choose, like Adam and Eve, not to trust God, not to obey God, but to uh, sort of go it alone, put God in our back pocket maybe or, or not, uh, but we really aren't uh, living um, and drawing our identity and our, our meaning and... and uh, uh, our, our well-being from Him. So this is where it all begins. Um, sin introduces all kinds of alienation and dysfunction into the world. It's like this pebble. I remember last week I used that analogy. And I can, can see ripples in a, in a body of water there emanating out. Think of your sin, think of sin in general, as a pebble tossed maybe thoughtlessly, carelessly into a, a pond, a lake. But these ripples begin to emanate outward from that single impact to touch everything in that body of water. Um, sin not only weakens the ability of individual sinners to themselves thrive in their relationship with God, but it also diminishes our ability to live in peace and harmony with one another, with other human beings. 
as well as our ability to steward creation the way God intended, if Genesis is any indication. But there's good news. And so today in our second installment of this series on the heart of the ministry of reconciliation, we're going to see that the, the, the heart of the solution is the human-to-God reconciliation, what we've been calling a vertical reconciliation. The ripples of individual reconciliation also carry an impact, a positive impact. And they multiply this, their, their, their reconciling effects beyond that vertical reconciliation in our relationships with one another, relationships between races and classes and nations, and between human beings and the creation in which God placed them. So, in other words, just to, to sort of net this out, the thesis of this lesson, I guess, is if the heart of the problem is that human sin alienates us from God, then the heart of the solution is for us first to be reconciled to God. And then and then only can we begin to pursue uh, a reconciliation which has any chance more widely, more broadly, of becoming uh, the reality. So what can 2 Corinthians 5, the text that we keep reading excerpts from each week, what can it tell us about how individual reconciliation with God launches the whole ministry of reconciliation, begins with the human reconciliation, this vertical aspect, and then that is what launches the broader ministry of reconciliation. How is that the case? What we want to do this morning then is examine that question. Our reconciliation to God first releases us from the preoccupation that we all have with ourselves. We're freed from that in Christ. I want you to notice what it says, what Paul says a, a couple of verses earlier than the ones that Ben just read. This is verse 14 and 15 of 2 Corinthians 5. He says that Jesus died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Now, isn't he implying here that we typically had lived, lived for ourselves? Jesus entered the world from outside, you know, like a meteor coming into earth. I mean, we didn't see it coming, you know, it's just, here it is. This thing, this, this body, this thing from outside, this force from outside entered our world, and now we can do something that humans had never really done before. Something becomes possible, and that thing that becomes possible is that we should no longer, or we might no longer, live for ourselves. The basic human condition after sin is to become fundamentally self-oriented, self-serving people. That may sting a little bit. We don't like to hear that as a characteristic or description of ourselves. But Martin Luther, who was no slouch when it comes to Bible study, not to agree with everything he ever wrote with, or, or anybody ever wrote on earth, except you know, people who inspired the Bible, um, who were who, the inspired writers of the Bible. But I think he was right on this. He, he, he came up with a Latin term. You know, we, we refer to humans as homo sapiens, scientific name for humans. Luther said that humans basically are homo incurvatus in se, a Latin phrase which means Humanity turned in on himself or itself. Is that what you are? Is that what I am? According to Martin Luther, and I think he's got good biblical basis for this. We are basically by virtue of sin. So when you become old enough to become accountable before God, you become a basically self-absorbed person. That may sound strong, self-absorbed. Maybe I could just say self-oriented. Um... And if you think about this honestly, what percentage of the things that we do 
or say or even take under consideration in any serious way don't have some degree of self-interest involved in them. Am I right about that? Even when your motives are, are the purest, I would suggest that there's, a, there's at least a tinge on your best day of self-interest. And when you put a bunch of selfish creatures in a room or on a planet, you're going to get some conflict, right? You're going to get some strife. You're going to get some alienation, estrangement, bitterness, vengeance, war, violence. And that's what we see in the trajectory of the Genesis narrative between Genesis 3, the sin in the garden, and uh, until God comes to Abraham again randomly out of the blue and calls him to begin to perform this redemptive role um, personally but also in the history of his descendants. Now, I, I want you to, to, to kind of go in a different direction with me. I want, I want you to imagine with me a world in which every human being is suddenly completely free of self seeking, completely devoid of this sort of self-absorption. I want you to just take a moment, close your eyes if you need to, take a moment and think about what that would look like. Not a single person is worried about meeting their own selfish interests or needs or desires. They're all oriented in a different way, not inward, but outwardly. Imagine that world. How different it would be. It might mean that decisions about our use of nature, the, the land and water and air and animals that we all depend on and really are a part of. Adam was the earth being, remember? He was of earth. All of that, those decisions we make about that are not just about convenience for me. Well, that's more convenient for myself. They're not just about gain for me. Suddenly, those decisions are also about the good of creation and all the other beings, frankly, that God has made dependent on it. You know, when, when people are careless about their use of creation, they're not only violating what Genesis 1 said, but, but that's, a, that's a social sin often, too, because the, you're hurting people who depend upon that, those resources. We're all in a web together. Imagine when instead of racism and hatred, which come from leaning into those visceral fears we often have as humans of perceived difference. Somebody's different, so they must be a threat, or they must be something I have to otherize. Imagine if, if instead of leaning into that kind of, um, I, I would say very visceral kind of impulse, that human beings instead leaned into the dream of harmony, peace, Mutual thriving among all of God's manifold image bearers. I don't know how many of you know the poet Langston Hughes. He was associated with the Harlem Renaissance back in the early 20th century. An Afri African-American cultural renaissance situated in, Har in Harlem. He actually wrote a poem called I Dream a World in the 1940s that influenced um, the I Have a Dream speech that's more famous that Martin Luther King uh, Jr. delivered in, in the 1960s. I want to give you an excerpt of this poem by, by Langston Hughes and, and feel his dream. It's actually called, I Dream a World, a different kind of world. 
1941 or 45, I don't remember, in 1940s. He says, I dream a world where man, no other man, will scorn. Where love will bless the earth and peace its paths adorn. I dream a world where all will know sweet freedom's way. Where greed no longer saps the soul, nor avarice blights our day. A world I dream where black or white, whatever race you be, will share the bounties of the earth and every man is free. I've read just this week and, and over the last two or three weeks that these statistics are showing that uh, there is a rise, a significant rise, both in the number of hate crimes in America and the number of racist organizations in the U.S. It, the latter is dramatically on the rise over the last five, six years. And th these are just the ones that, that are official, that they can count. And they're speculating, and there are many others that are sort of you know, clandestine in the backwoods someplace. Just these groups whose whole identity and purpose is to get their identity from what they're not. And, and, to, and to otherize and um, ostracize and, and really scapegoat all of their problems on people of another race or something. Those are on the rise. Stuff that I kind of thought was, you know, just a joke. Like, you can march in that parade if you want to, but everybody's going to laugh at you, because that, we got rid of that. Coming out of the woodwork again. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Austrian immigrant to America. You ever heard of him? Somebody from California. Others of you have lifted weights. Everybody knows Arnold, or watch movies. Um, he posted a personal video just this past week. Maybe you saw it. Just on social media, just his own personal warning about the rise in anti-Semitism in America. And he says there, it destroyed my, if you're tempted to, to go down that path, it's a warning just for the good of humanity. He says, if you're tempted to go down that path, if you're being courted by one of these race hate groups or uh, white supremacy groups or something like that, he says, I want you to notice that it destroyed my own dad. And he, you know, he's reared by a dad. Who, who joined the Nazi paramilitary group, the Brown Shirts, in the 1930s in Austria and in Germany. And he says, My father bought into the idea that the only way to make my life better was to make other lives worse. That's how you feel good about yourself, is to demean and hate other people. And he says, Don't succumb to the temptations of this ideology. It is always easier to hate than it is to learn. In other words, you're taking the easy way out. You're lazy. That's what you are. You're wimpy, says a pretty strong guy. It's easier, he says, when somebody challenges you to just get hurt feelings and to go find some echo chamber that will tell you you're right and they're wrong. Pretty much a picture of our culture war. And here's what he says, this ruined my dad who turned to alcohol and became an alcoholic and died in embarrassment and shame over that. And he says it will ruin you. And what I'm asking you folks to do today is to imagine with me such a world where that's not the case. And we have to say imagine because obviously it's not typically our reality right now. But look at Paul's language in verse 15. Jesus died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Might live. Your version may say should live. This is subjunctive conditional language. It's not the case yet, but it's possible. 
He's holding out a possibility. So what, what is it that would make this unlikely but beautiful scenario possible? Well, the thing that makes it possible is nothing less than an act of divine creation. Our reconciliation to God, which has all these other rippling effects, positive benefits out into society and, and, and the world and, and, and subsequent uh, history, is something that requires an act of divine creation. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. We've read this so many times. There's so many implications. So we can, we, you can, this is one of those statements that you can chew on uh, forever, really. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Focus in on the word creation. He doesn't say if you come to Christ, if you're in Christ, if, you've, if you're a Christian and you're in a relationship with Christ, it, it, there's a new adjustment. He doesn't say there's a new tweak. You get to keep being you. I just need to modify a couple of things, calibrate it a little bit. No, no. It's not an adjustment. It's a whole new creation. You see the difference? It's a whole new thing. It's coming in out of the blue. For all this reconciliation, beginning with our own, to be possible, then something wholly new, a new creative force must enter us and enter our world from the outside. In the beginning, everything was you know, dark and, and void and formless. It took an act of God, it took the Word of God, to bring order and light and then life in the creation account in Genesis 1. In the same way, nothing is really going to change in us in terms of the alienation we experience personally inside us and between us and others and in the world more broadly unless something, a creative act of God, enters that world from the outside. Have you ever struggled with the same old sin over and over again? Any of you ever had a problem with the same sin more than once? I hope you're getting the irony in that question. You're not, you know, I don't, I, I committed that one back then, but it's been 25 years, I get another one now. You probably need to take a little closer look if that's the case. Most of us struggle, we have tendencies, good ones and bad ones, and most of us struggle with the same thing. Oh, the Apostle Paul did. Remember Romans 7, I won't quote it again. Uh, I'm not going to put it on the screen again anyway, but remember he, he's, he's kind of going through that thing about how, however hard he tries, he can't seem to live the way he knows he should. The evil that I do not want to do is what I keep on doing, Paul says. And finally just calls himself a wretched man. The only thing that can truly address that situation of the same old, same old, the same old estranging, alienating, destructive effects of our sinfulness is when God brings us into something new. A new kind of life, which is exactly what Paul said a chapter earlier in Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with Him, with Christ, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When you're baptized into Christ, it's not just something you do afterwards as a formality and you really got the, the business done earlier. In the New Testament, it's always the moment at which you're, you're transformed. It's that radical. Remember in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, it's just like Israel. It's analogized with Israel going through the Red Sea. 
They were baptized into the sea, he says, just like you were baptized into Christ. Well, how, how dramatic was the change between the one bank where Pharaoh's army is pursuing and going through the water and the other bank when they're safe on the other side with the Egyptian army vanquished? It's the difference in slavery and freedom. The water was. It's the difference in death and life. The water was. That's, that's not a Church of Christ thing. That's a New Testament thing that nobody questioned for centuries. There's a lot more in the Bible than that, though, we sometimes need to remember in our circles. Like this. It's not just, did they get baptized? The real point he's making is, don't just keep on sinning like you used to. This, this has a context, not a proof text just for baptism. He's saying, don't you know, are you, are you ignorant that all we who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? There's supposed to be a newness of life. A radically new being is born. And that old being of sin is left dead in the waters of baptism. So what I'm trying to stress here is, for us to be reconciled to God, which launches all this other reconciliation, we have to recognize that this is an act God does on us. It's an act of creation. And to understand, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote a famous book called Mere Christianity. Many of you have read it. A lot of us have read it probably multiple times. It's, it's, it's the kind of book you could just almost read you know, every year and get something new out of. And, and one of the passages in there, a pretty famous passage, he, he writes that to understand the absolute renewal, renewing, like making us brand new into something new, something altogether different, that God is performing on us as Christians. Lewis asks the readers to imagine, he says, imagine yourself as a house. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what, he is, you can, what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. In other words, he's tweaking some things, it appears, right? Minor adjustments. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently... God starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of. It's a whole new house. The you that was is being replaced, reborn, radically renewed. When speaking of conversion to Christ, the Gospel of John uses nothing less than the language of rebirth, right? John chapter 1, straight out of the gate. But to all who did receive Him, that is Christ, the embodied incarnate Word, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born. Well, they're already born. Yeah, but He's speaking of a different kind of birth. But it's that radical. A thing that didn't exist now exists in a sense. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. The language of birth, rebirth, new birth. How many people do you know who conceived themselves? Biologically, it hurts your brain to even think about. Um, 
Nicodemus basically asks a question like that, right? John 3, it's applied to Nicodemus, this Sanhedrin person who steals away by night to talk to Jesus. He's not supposed to, he could get in trouble, but he, he's just seen too many crazy things, these signs that Jesus has done. He wants to ask him about it. And Jesus says, unless you are born, unless one is born again, or your version may say from above, which is a, a proper translation of that word as well. This is a birth from above from outer space, from a different world. It's an act of divine creation. And Old Testament prophets, like Ezekiel, we were talking about this morning, talk about the change coming to human beings in the Messianic age as getting nothing less than a whole new heart. Ezekiel 36, I love this passage. God says, you know, Israel's dealing with bondage because of their sins. And prophet after prophet after prophet had gone to them until there was no remedy. And finally, they're carried away into Babylonian captivity. Lamentations and all that. And God has this promise, even in their darkest hour, I will sprinkle clean water on you, Israel, and all people who flow from, you know, from Israel, the, the people who listen to and accept the, the, the Israelite Messiah. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you, God says, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He's not talking here in Pauline language about flesh versus spirit. He's saying, he's saying I'm going to give you a heart that is flesh and that it's malleable and shapeable. It's not hardened. It's not just a stone heart. It's not a, a recalcitrant obstinate heart. It's a heart which can be coached and changed and transformed and, and become holy and godly. You're finally going to be receptive to that. And guess what? How are they going to do that? By willpower? What's he say? They're going to, you're going to try harder finally. That's not what he says. He says, I will give you this heart. I'll give you a new heart. It's an act of divine creation. So how does God do this? What is it that finally changes our stony, stubborn hearts from the inside out? Because one would think that Paul, you know, uh, wouldn't have to write what he wrote in Romans 7. What is it? Where does that come from? The answer is, it comes from redirected love. Our reconciliation to God occurs when our loves are reordered, reoriented, redirected. As Ezekiel said, let's look back at that again. This new transformed heart comes from God's Spirit. The reason we get a new heart, he says, is I will put my Spirit within you. I'll put a piece of me, if that's not theologically sacrilegious to say a piece of God, I, I, you will have me in you. It's, it's more profound, more radical, more transformative, wildly so, than just saying, I'm going to give you some new rules to follow, and I want you to really buckle down. We love that language. It fits our ego. It fits American you know, culture, um, you know, Horatio Alger stories, bootstraps, all that. It, it, it doesn't really work. And the quicker we realize that, the more likely we are to actually be transformed and have a chance at holiness. 
I'm going to put my spirit within you. It's like the passage Gary read from Ezekiel 34 in the Bible class a couple chapters earlier where he says, you've had all these shepherds, they're, they're not even able to lead you. I'm, I'm personally am going to come down and be your shepherd. I'm going to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And here he puts it in this language of transformed hearts that come from having God's very spirit within you. According to the New Testament, we are given God's Holy Spirit at baptism. Acts 2.38 says in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he says to those people who are saying, you know, what did we do? We, you're, you're convicting us of, of having crucified a person we thought was a charlatan who was actually the Christ. Can we be saved? And his answer is, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins, and so that you can receive the gift of what? The Holy Spirit. When we're baptized into Christ, God gives us His Spirit. Exactly what Ezekiel says here in, in Ezekiel 36. And Jesus Christ as the author, the originator of new creation, the one who initiated new creation, is the source of our transformed hearts and then of our whole lives. If anyone is in Christ, somehow... We become a new creation. And I want you to notice here the way that he brought this new creation to earth. Verse 15, a couple verses earlier, he says this. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, that is Jesus, who for their sake, for our sake, the creator, the incarnate word, the one without whom nothing would exist that exists, died at the hands of part of that creation. Why? For our sake. Because He loved us. Because we needed Him. And He was raised. The grave could not hold Him. And it was the fact of Christ's death for His sake. And it's the fact of, uh, in, in Paul's case, and, and it's the fact of, of Christ's death for my sake. And the fact that His resurrection promises to foreshadow my own. When I truly take that into my deepest self, when you truly take those facts of what Jesus did in history for you, and what He promises He will do for you, that He's already foreshadowed in His own resurrection, when you take that in deeply and sincerely and truly, that is going to do something to, you, to, to what you love. Verse 14 this very context, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us, constrains us. The love of Christ has a grip on us. I'm beholden to it. I'm its captive willingly. Because we have concluded what? The things I just talked about. That He, the Creator, died for my sake. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Next thought, he thanks God for his Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself up for Paul to make him not wretched, but beloved and beautiful. And it's the love of Christ that has captured Paul that makes all of this possible. And isn't it our love's you know, we love a lot of things. Isn't it our loves that always essentially control us? I'm, I'm talking about in the final analysis. The, the kind of things that really 
shape us and transform us and give us new habits and, you know, trajectories, not just moments. Yeah, we can, we can have, our, have bursts of obedience based on mere human effort. You're feeling good one day. You got a good night's sleep. You heard a, a sermon the day before that was just remarkable. Just kidding. Just kidding. More likely, you, you got a surge of guilt from some uh, poorly worded sermon, and it sounded like a guilt trip was his goal. Whatever it is, we have our moments where we do all right. And what happens every time? If it's based on just guilt, if it's based just on your sense of duty, and that's it, that's all you got to work with, point A, that's no different from the way every other non-Christian in the world has ever worked morally and ethically. Every human theological system, I'd say just our conscience does that for us. How's that Christian? What's unique about Christianity is that the God who made everything, the holy God who made everything, is also a God of incredible love, to the point that he comes down to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. At great sacrifice to himself. He didn't just say, oh, sin doesn't matter. He pays the price for it because it does matter. His holiness is not compromised. And yet his love. How many times in the Old Testament did God start talking about what he's going to do and then corrects himself and go, you know, I can't do that. I'm a holy God. I'm not like you. I love in a way that's unearthly. And that is embodied and manifested in Jesus Christ. And Paul is absolutely smitten by it. And we have to learn the lesson that he learned here, that it's what we truly love. It's what we delight in. It's what we find beautiful or mesmerizing or awe-inspiring that ultimately controls what we do. That's where, that's where it is. It's in your heart. Tim Keller talks about this in a footnote in um, his book, Making Sense of God, second apologetics book he wrote just a few years ago, 2016 or so. He says this, Matthew 6.21 says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you treasure is what absorbs your attention and commitment the most. Whatever captures the heart's trust and love, controls our thoughts, our feelings, and behavior, too. We often want to start with behavior. They're just not obeying. People are disobedient. Why, though? Why? Is it a knowledge problem? You need to preach on this more. Pull the church and see if everybody doesn't know X is wrong. Or not doing Y is wrong. It's usually not a data problem, for the most part. It's a heart issue. Like Brother Greg was saying in Bible class this morning. That's, where, that's what Jesus often focuses on. What captures your heart's trust and love is going to control your thoughts, your feelings, and your behavior. What the heart loves most, what the heart, rather, the heart most loves and wants, notice this, the mind finds reasonable magically. This makes a lot of sense logically. Oh, does it? You want it. You need it. You long for it. And then we begin to reorder our theology and everything. What the heart most loves and wants, the emotions find valuable. When it's threatened, that's what gets you bent out of shape. An indicator of what really you love. And the will finds doable. There you go. There's the obedience. Obedience matters. Not backing off on obedience. We're asking where it comes from. Paul says, I am controlled by the love of Jesus. What Keller is discussing in this footnote is actually Augustine's uh, concept of, of loves being 
ordered properly or disordered. I know I've referred to that before, uh, uh, maybe a couple years ago or something, but I want to just revisit this idea. I think it has a lot of biblical basis. Augustine, who is a 5th fifth, fifth century uh, North African uh, Christian theologian, bishop in a church at a place called Hippo, I think it's in present-day Tunisia or Algeria, somewhere like that. He said this, sin and dysfunction, I'm paraphrasing him, basically comes from having our loves out of order. They're not ranked properly. They're disordered. Deep down, we actually treasure other things more than God. And if we treasure God, often it's utilitarian. We treasure God because He can give us these other things. Not God in Himself, because God is inherently beautiful and desirable and lovable, but God can give me the things I want. If it, that's the religious cast on a disordered love. People don't believe in God, they don't even have God in the picture. At any rate, we actually are treasuring and delighting in other things. Money, security, control, acceptance, reputation, approval, achievements, more than God. And what we, you know, for sure, what we most deeply treasure isn't even always clear to us. It's hanging down in our subconscious somewhere. We don't know why we act like we act or whatever. It may not be revealed to us until that thing is threatened. But in a real sense, our, our, our effort the source of our trust for what we, what we think we need for our well-being, our emotions, our emotional attachments, all of that always follow what we love. So what can explain how Paul could forsake his former life? Remember how Paul goes through his spiritual pedigree and his resume in Philippians? Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, so dedicated to the law, learned at the feet of Gamaliel, an eminent uh, Jewish rabbi. Paul was on a fast track to achievement in the world of, you know, nerd world of Judaism, I guess. He was like an academic, kind of. But what does he say after coming in contact with the Jesus he once persecuted? He calls that former resume and pedigree and all those achievements mere dung refuse. He exchanged it all for a life of self-sacrificing commitment to the ministry of reconciliation. Nobody made him do it. What made him do it was a new love. He had become controlled by the love of Christ. He'd become deeply thrilled by its beauty and its hope. He was captivated by what Christ had done for him, the foremost of sinners in his own mind. And his loves had become radically reordered. All those other loves that we have, folks, all of us, all those desires and longings and needs, they're God-given anyway. I'm not saying we can't distort them, right? We can warp them. Sin does that. But the basic fundamental needs and desires we have are God-given. We didn't make those up. And as such... They're merely echoes of God's voice. They're signs pointing to God. Blessings that are supposed to send us to Him. And He is the true satisfaction of all our longings and desires. 
Psalm 37.4 says that if we truly see God in His glory, if we truly hear His bidding through Christ to come, be with Him, be His child, be His bride, be in an intimate, real relationship with this God of every good and perfect gift. If we truly feel His love in our bones, can we help but delight in Him? Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, let's don't misread this. He's not saying... Be kind of into God, and you'll get all the stuff you want. A lot of places in the Bible, people won't get the stuff they want, because the stuff they want takes them away from God. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, so on. He's saying, if you truly delight yourself in the Lord, all the things you want are going to be the things the Lord wants you to want, because He loves you more than you love you. We don't know what we're doing. We don't even know what we want. We think we do. What do you do? Look at some Instagram posts and get a list of stuff you want? I mean, before that, it was some other way. My neighbor's got this. I, that's a new thing out there. Why did you get that? Because it's out there. And I got a raise. And so I got it. I don't know what to do with it. Five minutes, I want one in. I'll get something else. We don't know what we're doing with wants and desires. We're piddling around with stuff that isn't going to really fulfill us unless it's Him. Even the best stuff, the thing that we make idols of, are blessings again pointing us on to Him. There's some fuller manifestation of that in eternity with God anyway. Whatever it is. Security, relationship, intimacy, wonderful food. Isaiah 25 says we're going to banquet, feast with Him forever. I mean, whatever it is, it's, it's pointing to something else. So if we delight ourselves in Him, if He's truly our love, and I mean our affections, not just, this isn't any fun, but i got to do this so I don't go to hell. That's not love. That's fear, what that is. Falling in love with God, being controlled and captivated and smitten by what He did for us and who He is, is the whole ball of wax. And that's one reason why worship is so important. Worship is all about looking at, holding God up and looking at all the facets and dimensions of, of, of the gem that He is, that the gospel is, so that that's what we delight in. And then our desires begin to change anyway. And even when we're enjoying something like a good meal, or romance with our spouse, or fun with our grandchildren, or the most perfect sunrise or sunset, or fishing day, or art, or whatever it is, even then we're going, look how good God is. Why is it this way? Why is it so cool? Why are there, you know, 290 foot tall coastal redwoods that are as old as Julius Caesar and Jesus? That, that made me feel the most awe I felt in a long time seeing those things. Why? Why did God do that? Why is he so, gratuit so gratuitously good and, and gracious toward us? That'll change what you love. So, the reason our individual reconciliation to God, the vertical reconciliation is the heart of the whole ministry of reconciliation, is that our new creation in Christ is a transformation from living for self to living for Jesus Christ, which means a life lived in a way that is controlled by love. 
in every act of selfless love, however small, whether we are loving Jesus in the moment or loving in some small way his creation or our fellow human beings, or just, just not going along with all the hate and fear and suspicion between people groups or whatever it is, whatever it is, each one of those is a tiny stone which launches its, tossed into the pond of, of this world, which launches, launches its own concentric ripples. But these are ripples bringing reconciliation where before there was only alienation. So we don't want to minimize our relationship with God. That's, that's where this starts. But it ramifies out just like sin did. Thank you for your attention today. We are going to now sing the song that Lawson has prepared. If there's anyone here that needs to come to Jesus, we stand ready to help you do that. Study with you, pray with you. Whatever your need is, let us know by coming to the front while we stand together and sing.